The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Woman in the Sky, Episode 1. November 1912. Step by step, Elizabeth descended the staircase into frigid darkness. Wax dripped down the candle as it lit her way. The flame quivered before her, threatening to go out. Elizabeth could sense the smallness of herself, her twig-like forearm, her gangly legs, her ever-blinking eyes. Deep within the black cellar, she felt brittle and exposed, a waif swaddled in woolen layers. Go back, she thought. You don't belong here. You're out of your depth. This is not the life you want. Yet she took another step, and another, plunging further into the abyss. When Elizabeth reached the bottom, she found an earthen floor, and the firm ground gave her small relief. She drifted through the vacuum, aimless, until her candle shed light on a table. The wood was unfinished and crudely nailed together. A flaxen cloth was spread across its surface. As Elizabeth hovered closer, strange objects entered the pool of light. Unmarked beakers stood in a row, their tops capped with interconnected tubes. Several thermometers lay side by side, and handwritten notes penned in a microscopic scrawl covered reams of scattered pages. Strange liquids settled at the bottom of unmarked jars. A Bunsen burner rested in the middle, next to a coiled hose. The scene looked like any chemistry bench at school. It all felt strangely familiar, until she saw the cluster of hypodermic needles. There were five in all, fanned out along the edge of the table. The needles were tiny, but the syringes had the girth of fully grown carrots. Elizabeth bent over to inspect them, but when she took a step forward, her toe struck something hard. She lowered the candle and saw them, two metal canisters standing boldly next to a rough-hewn table leg. Elizabeth brushed cobwebs away from one canister and examined the label pasted to its surface. The paper was old and faded, but she could just make out the printed words. She crouched there for a moment, watching her breath diffuse in the dim light. And then, suddenly, she stood up. Her eyes bulged. She crushed her lips between her fingers. That's it, she thought. It all makes sense. Her heart pounded. Her breaths came hard and fast. Excitement surged through her like a geyser. She drifted backward toward the staircase. That's the answer, she thought, over and over. But is it really possible? Then she heard creaking. The floorboards above her moaned. A pair of booted feet stomped across the floor. She looked up toward the cracked open cellar door. A voice called down, Elizabeth, someone's here. Elizabeth's throat tightened. 
She looked at the table. She saw the notes, the chemistry set, the needles. She yearned to bag them all and take them with her. This is what she needed. This was why she'd come. If she left empty-handed, she would have nothing. Elizabeth, rasped the voice. We have to go. But Elizabeth didn't move. Her mind reeled. How had she gotten here? Only a week ago, she had been an ordinary 21-year-old, jaded and friendless, and dragging herself from class to class. Now she stood in a cavernous room, deep underground, trembling with cold and fear. She was risking her life for a man she hardly knew, and she had no idea why. Her vision spotted. She felt herself gag. Elizabeth bolted toward the staircase. The door slammed shut. The candle blew out. Now I want to show you something really interesting, said Dr. O'Malley as he pushed a skeleton into the room. The skeleton was suspended from a metal frame, and the bottom was outfitted with wheels so that Dr. O'Malley could roll it into the middle of the floor. He adjusted his bifocals and said, Now then, what do you think? The students all slanted forward, leaning into their wooden desks. The skeleton was human, all right, but there was something wrong with it. Many of the ribs had fused together, forming a gray breastplate. The cervical spine was too thick, as if the neck had melted into the shoulders. Indeed, the vertebrae showed little distinction. Each segment blended into the others. But most shocking of all was the skull, which bulged on one side, as if the sphenoid bone had blown a bubble. Was it? One student stammered. Go on, said Dr. O'Malley, smiling encouragingly. Was it a fire? Ah, a very good idea, Dr. O'Malley said, but not correct. The other students tittered, but the professor raised his hand. Now, now, it's a fine guess, but despite appearances, bone does not liquefy. A fire would have turned this specimen to ash. Some kind of tumor? asked another. In his brain, I mean? Another splendid theory, affirmed O'Malley. Yet another illusion, I'm afraid. It seems like a tumor might distend the skull, like so. I know many a physician who would agree with you, but that's not what happened here. Any other guesses? O'Malley lowered his eyebrows, then stood on tiptoes, as if trying to spy a distant point. The students recoiled at this gesture, then swiveled their heads backwards to identify whatever their professor was trying to see. Beyond the rows of heads, the well-cut hair, the white collars of lab coats, the stacks of notebooks and scribbling fountain pens, appeared a small face of a girl. Miss Crown, said Dr. O'Malley, any bright ideas? The students all craned their necks toward Elizabeth Crown. Everyone knew who she was, of course. She was the only girl in the room but she was conspicuous even so. Her reddish cheeks looked like dabs of watercolor on her pale face 
which contrasted sharply with her navy blue dress. Her dark hair formed a subtle wave beneath a thick hairband, which was embroidered in silver patterns. That metallic thread was the only decorative thing about her. Otherwise, her vestments were devoid of ornament. The way she ground her pencil repetitively into her paper, it was clear that Miss Crown was not writing notes. She was doodling. Thirty pairs of eyes were now trained on her, yet the girl didn't cringe. Her pencil stopped wagging, and then she set it on the desk. A moment passed before she raised her brown irises toward Dr. O'Malley, crossed her hands in front of her, and said, I don't know. She paused just long enough for smiles to form. Anyone in the room could feel the cresting wave of amusement. But then Miss Crown resumed, Exactly. But if I had to make a bet, I'd say it's M.O.P. The tension lifted, and the students looked around anxiously. M.O.P.? read their startled eyes. What in blazes is that? O'Malley's smile was steady. Would you care to elaborate, Miss Crown? It's just a guess, she murmured. I dare say your peers are not as versed in acronyms, said O'Malley in his sing-song Ulster accent. For their benefit, perhaps you could explain. Miss Crown swallowed hard, then took the pencil and wove her fingers around it. The pencil quavered like a dragonfly's wings. I believe it stands for Myositis ossificans progressiva, she said, then cleared her throat. Very rare, I've heard. The muscle tissue ossifies. Essentially, your muscles turn to bone. Parts of your skeleton enlarge until it crushes your inner organs. In the end, the patient dies of suffocation. She huffed, laid the pencil down, and crossed her arms. But I don't know for sure. That's repulsive, one young man proclaimed. He shook his head incredulously. Enlarging bones? Crushing the organs? It sounds like a dime-store novel. O'Malley rested an elbow against his lectern. He frowned, then scratched the tip of his nose. It does at that, he said. It is a gruesome theory, and it sounds too strange to be true. I trust no one here has ever seen what Miss Crown describes. The students nodded their agreement, and the young man smiled triumphantly. So it must be something else, he concluded. Not at all, O'Malley retorted, then shot a knowing glance across the room. And let this be a lesson. In science, uncanny doesn't mean untrue. Strange as it sounds, this poor fellow had flesh that turned to bone. It's very rare. There is no cure. He suffered terribly, to be sure. But on the bright side, Miss Crown, your prognosis is exactly right. If there was one thing in the world Elizabeth relished, it was the conjoined circles she saw through a pair of binoculars. She loved aiming the twin lenses at a distant tree. As she adjusted the focus, the blurs sharpened, becoming branches, shriveled leaves, and then, on this crisp afternoon, the stark outline 
of a raven. The blackbird stood still, jerked its head, blinked its curious round eyes, and finally flapped away. Elizabeth let her binoculars dangle as she trudged through the wet leaves. She exhaled silvery breath into the fading sun rays, and then she balled her fingers inside her wool mittens. She didn't expect to spot much avian this afternoon. The skies were bare and silent, except for the faint honking of geese as their V-shaped flocks migrated across the faded clouds. When she reached the creek, Elizabeth saw movement through the trees, and she rolled her eyes at the sight of Abner. His face was aimed at the ground ahead of him, and his furry Ushanka hat bobbed comically as he moved. His hands were stuffed into the pockets of his checkered coat, and it was only when he reached the small footbridge that he looked up and spotted Elizabeth. Oh, he exclaimed, there you are. Here I am, Elizabeth replied curtly. And where were you? Practice ran late, he shrugged. Sorry. Water gurgled beneath them as they stood on the bridge, and they leaned over the railing to watch the dark water trickle between the rocks. Did you see anything? he asked. A raven, not much else. Abner nodded vacantly. I think you really impressed O'Malley. Elizabeth allowed the side of her lip to twitch, but otherwise she betrayed no interest in this remark. She grinned at Abner, jabbed a mittened finger into his gut, and said, You look like a walrus. Well, it's cold out. Lord knows how you survive New York winters. It's chillier up here, Abner averred, snuffling. And anyway, I worked up a sweat on the court. It makes everything feel so much colder. Couldn't we just go inside? Do as you like, Elizabeth said, clutching her binoculars and heading down the trail. As I recall, you wanted to join me. There was a part of Elizabeth that loved to taunt Abner, who huffed and rocked on his heels, but eventually he started after her, just as she expected. She knew she shouldn't take such pleasure in his discomfort. After all, he was her only friend. This would mark Elizabeth's third autumn at St. Luke's Medical School, a tiny college sequestered among the Berkshires. Out here in the wooded New England wilderness, the isolation had suffocated her. She avoided the packs of students in the quad, who watched her from afar and murmured among themselves. She locked herself in her special dormitory until the coast was clear, and then she sneaked away toward the open grounds. But Abner had clumsily wandered into her life, and Elizabeth treated him with the same affection as a stray puppy. Every moment he wasn't playing basketball, Abner invented new reasons to spend time with her. Charmed by his awkward attentions, Elizabeth had finally asked him to go bird-watching. The invitation was absurd. Abner had grown up among crowded Brooklyn tenements, and he clearly didn't like to spend time out of doors. But he'd agreed, without hesitation, which amused Elizabeth to no end. As she strolled down the dark soil, Elizabeth's eyes cut through the colorless landscape, surveying the naked canopy for movement. The branches sometimes quivered, 
stirred by the subtle breezes that seeped between the trunks, but otherwise the woods were as still as a cemetery. And then, the instant she decided to turn around, she saw the flash of crimson. Elizabeth jammed the binoculars against her eye sockets and drew an icy breath. To see a cardinal was common among these hillocks, but this specimen made her heart race. The bird bore soft red feathers, and its eye glinted within the black mask of its face. Its beak was a blunt orange arrowhead, and it hopped on its branch for only a few seconds before freezing in place. She watched the bird, transfixed, until Abner appeared at her side, shivering noticeably as he stared at the ground. "'Take a look,' whispered Elizabeth, and she shoved the binoculars into his grasp. Abner took them reluctantly and aimed them at the sky. "'Lower,' instructed Elizabeth, and she touched his gloved hands and guided them down and across until she felt his arms tense. "'Oh, my goodness!' he said. Is that a, a robin? A cardinal, corrected Elizabeth. You can tell from the sharp angle of its head. How do you know it's a male? Elizabeth snatched the binoculars back and wiped the lenses with the hem of her tweed coat. I've been at this a while. Abner scanned at the trees. Are there any? He trailed off. Any what? He bit his lip. Please don't think I'm stupid. I'm not in the habit of condescending to valedictorians, retorted Elizabeth. Salutatorian, mumbled Abner. So then, are there any, I mean, around here, have you ever heard of any, I don't know, large birds? Like a hawk. Or maybe a falcon? He sighed fretfully. Not a falcon, even bigger than that. Like an ostrich? Uh, maybe that big. In Massachusetts? Certainly not. As she said this, Elizabeth watched a shadow fall over Abner's face. The young man always looked anxious. He rarely smiled or laughed, and his eyes often widened with confusion and fear, especially near students he didn't know well. His every step was clumsy, as if an unskilled puppeteer were guiding his movements. But this expression was more plaintive than before. Something troubled him. "'What's on your mind, Abner?' said Elizabeth. The forced cheeriness of her voice surprised even her. "'Nothing,' he said. "'Just seeing things.' Abruptly, he turned away, down the track. "'Where are you going?' called Elizabeth. "'I just—I have to write a letter,' he stuttered over his shoulder. "'I'll see you later.' Ms. Grayson entered the classroom, cradling a ceramic cylinder in her arms. She crossed to the front, then placed it heavily on her wooden table. The cylinder looked like a clay milk jug, except for the spout extended from its curved belly. Ms. Grayson stepped away, straightened her dark blouse, and inspected her pupils. The room had gone quiet. The fifteen students only gazed at the object, which was tan-colored 
and had tiny writing etched into its surface. "'Who among you has seen this before?' said Ms. Grayson. No one breathed a word. But this was common. Ms. Grayson often stupefied her classrooms. She was tall and trim, and her corseted gown accentuated the straightness of her posture. Her presence was imposing, and the intensity of her eyes could petrify anyone around her. And yet, when the students were alone in their dormitories, they whispered their agreement. Ms. Grayson was also striking, an ageless beauty, a stoic medusa that shook them to their core. Even Elizabeth felt sheepish in her presence, and it took all of her courage to raise her hand. Ms. Crown, said Ms. Grayson, you know this apparatus? Ms. Grayson stressed the final word with mocking disapproval, as if the thing was unworthy of her scrutiny. I... I believe it's a revigator, stammered Elizabeth. You believe that? Ms. Grayson nodded as she paced the stone floor. Perhaps because you have excellent eyesight and can read its name from where you're sitting. A couple of students ahead of her chuckled into cupped hands. Elizabeth felt her spine elongate. I know that's what it is, she said, because my aunt had one. Ah, said Ms. Grayson brusquely. Then you know its purpose. It's for health. It's for what? Ms. Grayson exclaimed. Speak up, dear. You ask too much of my weary eardrums. Again, the students snickered in their seats. This time they also turned to glimpse back at her. It's for health, Elizabeth called out. The liner contains radium, and they say... She wavered. The instructions say to fill it with water and leave it overnight. The pitcher radiates the water, and then you drink it. They say it helps prevent arthritis. Ms. Grayson leaned back, pressing her palms against the table. She jutted her chin toward the revigator. And what do you think? She cooed. Is it valid? Could this little pitcher cure your aching joints? In the silence that followed, Elizabeth realized the question was still directed at her. I don't know. You don't know. Again, the jeering tone. Because you haven't tested it. You have no subjects. You have no methodology. You have no information. So how could you know? Ms. Grayson glared at her, then licked her teeth beneath her lips. And yet, I think you have an educated guess. That is, I think you have an opinion, based on limited empirical evidence. Would that be so, Ms. Crown? Elizabeth's pulse pounded in her neck, and she felt a drunken warmth swell inside her temples. At last she said, I suppose I do. Well then, said Ms. Grayson, what do your instincts tell you, Ms. Crown? My instincts tell me, said Elizabeth slowly, that it's a sham. Radium is a dangerous element. It's nothing to be trifled with. Handling radium is known to cause burns and lesions. And anyway, there's usually lead and arsenic in the water. And everybody knows they're poisonous. I don't see why anyone would use such a contraption. It's quackery, pure and simple. 
The moment Elizabeth stopped speaking, she sensed the stillness of the room. She wanted to say a hundred things just then, to claim she didn't know for sure, to insist that maybe she was wrong, to apologize for lecturing. But she added nothing. She only stiffened her lips, tightened the weave of her fingers, and waited for someone else to speak. At last, Miss Grayson said, Well then, I'll find you a different Christmas gift. The professor spoke with a curled smile, her tone so coy that the entire room blossomed with laughter. Even Elizabeth smirked self-consciously, and for a split second she caught a glimpse from Miss Grayson, an approving look that made Elizabeth feel like a lit sparkler. The euphoria overwhelmed her, even as Miss Grayson turned to the blackboard, drew a piece of chalk, and began to scratch formulae into the cloudy slate. The key slipped from Elizabeth's hand and tinkled on the floor. She sighed, bent over, and picked it up with a lifeless hand. She could barely find the energy to slip the key into its lock and push open the heavy wood door. Still, she impulsively looked both ways, down the empty corridor, to see whether anyone was watching. The door clinked shut, and she leaned against it, letting her belt of books slip from her hand and flump to the woven rug. Elizabeth noted the dusty texts piled on her hutch, the underwood standing grimly in the middle, and the crumpled typing paper scattered on the floor. Unlaundered clothing lay in heaps, while stockings and scarves drooped from wooden bedposts. Her quarters were already cozy, and the disorder made it all more stifling. Elizabeth crossed the room on rigid legs and let her body collapse headlong into the unmade bed. But then she felt a strange sensation. Something crinkled beneath her blanket. Elizabeth let her face smother in the ruffled fabric until she finally rolled onto her side, peeled the blanket back, and saw the strips of paper underneath. They were three newspaper clippings. The gray paper was creased, but the ink was clearly printed. The articles bore no dates, but they weren't old, she could tell. Elizabeth lifted one up toward the afternoon sunlight that trickled between her curtains. She scanned the text, but before she could finish reading, she saw an indentation in the paper. She flipped the scrap over and saw a note, written in pencil. Tonight, Bell Tower, 9 p.m. You've been listening to The Woman in the Sky, Episode 1, by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown is produced by Backpack Media, LLC. To learn more about Elizabeth Crown and the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.
Special thanks to Naoya Sakamata for the use of her music.